Okay. You know that our platform is called Dear White Women. We have this podcast, we have a book, we do talks, and a lot of our work as biracial women is to welcome more white women into the conversation. And as part of that work, we run into definitely more than once people saying that they're tired of talking about race. We hear them worry about saying or doing the wrong thing, and they're very concerned about cancel culture. Which is why this next conversation is an incredibly important one for all of us to listen to. Dr. Nancy Dome is the author of the book, Let's Talk About Race and Other Hard Things. Don't you love that title? I love it. And in it, she lays out a structure of compassionate dialogue, the idea to recognize, interrupt, and repair hurts, and really leans into the idea that every single one of us can talk more about not just race, but also all sorts of other hard things. Given the divide we see in our country, you know, that retrenching, this idea of staunch individualism, trumping community, we need these tools. I really, really like how practical they are. Plus, in it, we learned how this structure, the RIR, really is a form of self-care and growth and such a powerful way to approach so many things in our lives. So listen in to learn more as this conversation really builds on the one that we had with Andre Brown in last week's episode. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And we're also the co-authors of a book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. So if you haven't read it and left a review on Amazon for us, please get going. Would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. My name is Dr. Nancy Dome, and I am the co-founder of Epic Education and now the founder of Firehorse Rising, which is what Dr. Nancy Dome is under. And I do work around the DEI and belonging specifically, working starting with education, but also looking and working with corporations to kind of to support them in creating more create inclusive environments, impacting climate and culture for the betterment for all employees and all people who work within the systems. Oh my gosh, so many questions to ask you. And I wanna start with when we first heard the title of your book, we realized immediately that you were our people. And so <laughs> I wanna start there. Why did you write this book? And then how'd you come up with that title too? Well, the title, funny enough, so the book started because I created a protocol about 15, 20 years ago called the RIR. And it was simply called that. We just, you know, use the acronym for Recognize, Interrupt, Repair. And then as I started to really use and internalize the work myself, I realized that what I needed to add to it was this idea of compassion. Like, you know, recognize interrupt repair can happen in any form of dialogue. But if you don't have compassion as a part of it, then you're kind of losing what I thought was the most important piece, which is how do we communicate effectively and lovingly and compassionately with each other and still tackle those hard things. And the title of the book was simply that when I started my business six years ago, I actually had a training called Let's Talk About Race because I really wanted us just to like, let's talk about what's happening in spaces where we typically are avoiding these topics. And so it just made sense, but I really love the idea of other hard things because 
you know, race has always been my focus as a black woman and the impact of race on my life. But I also recognize that there's a lot of intersectionality and there's a lot of other things that we still struggle to talk with or talk about with each other. So uh, the other hard things was that little caveat at the bottom to, to say like, this isn't only a race conversation, but it's a conversation. Anytime you have anything that's difficult to discuss, the strategy can support that happening. When Sarah and I were writing our book, we sort of had this person in mind that we were writing it for, which is not to say it's not for everyone, but we were definitely writing it with like a couple people in mind. When you were writing this book, was there someone or sort of a group of people that you had in mind? Yeah, you know, I think it was primarily for white folks in general, because people of color genuinely are already having these conversations, right? Because it's a part of our survival on some level where we have to talk about these things. And because we have to navigate so many different environments, in my case, predominantly white environments, I really wanted to say, we can have this conversation and it doesn't have to be painful. It's not about shame or blame. It's really about us growing together, right? And meeting each other where we are are in this conversation. So I would say that in the, you know, most of my clients are white. And so, you know, how do I support them to lean into these conversations and feel in their discomfort, a level of safety? So anybody who's listening, who is a white woman is probably hopefully going like, yes, I want to hear this because I'm really excited to dive into some practical tools that you describe really well in your book, because you also mentioned compassion and then we needed to layer that in. There's a couple of quotes that jumped out at me from your book, but you said people who focus on political correctness tend to have compassion in their hearts, but they don't get the results that they're looking for. Right. And we hear it all the time. So many people, especially nowadays, so many white people in particular are really fearful about messing. Or, well, I guess they're fearful full stop because we're in sort of pandemic mode and there's been a lot of upheaval. So there's been a lot of fear anyway. And then you add on uncomfortable things like race and people shut down because they don't want to mess up. They don't want to experience cancel culture. And at the same time, because of the division we're in, we can't afford to just be okay with this status quo of like division, hatred, right? Like this is bad for all of us as human beings. And so another quote you said was during a time in our history, when people are anonymously attacking one another or using social media to encourage divisiveness. Oh, I guess, right. Basically you're talking about how we use these tools right now. You have this alternative and you just mentioned this idea of compassionate dialogue and, and we'll get into RIR soon, but you think that this is the answer. Like this compassionate dialogue is how we can heal our communities, how we can get more white people to get past this sense of fear that they're feeling. So can we break that down a little bit? Like what is compassionate dialogue and how does it work in practice? So if you think about it, compassionate dialogue is a framework right? So it's that overarching umbrella. And then the RIR are the, so compassionate dialogue would be the what, and the RIR is how you do it. And the compassionate dialogue has to be the umbrella because compassion is the key. And the steps just make it a more effective way for us to engage and be able to show up vulnerable, show up where we are and know that where we are is perfect because it's where we are and knowing that there's a place to go. So it really recognizes that this work that we're talking about, these conversations that we're talking about are a journey that we're constantly on. And so sometimes we take five steps forward and then sometimes we take a couple steps back. You know, sometimes that fear creeps into all of us and the minute we get defensive and we get afraid, then we're taking a step back. And so we might have to 
re-engage and figure out a new way to enter the conversation. But bringing that discomfort and bringing that first R, the recognize to consciousness, allows me to understand that I have to first mitigate myself, right? Because when we don't recognize our own feeling, our own triggers, and then what that looks like, if I don't ride that emotional wave, then I become part of the problem. And so when I recognize that, okay, I'm, you've triggered anger in me or you've triggered fear, and what is my typical response when I don't ride that emotional wave? And does it lead to the outcome that I want? So if, for me, I can say, if you trigger anger in me, you know, my company, Fire Horse Rising, is called that because I am a fire horse. I'm a Sag and a fire horse. And my arrow shoots very straight and very hard sometimes. And so... If I don't ride that emotional wave and really tap into compassion, there's no malice in me truly, but it doesn't mean that I won't cause harm. It doesn't mean that what I say won't have an impact on you. That's not my intended impact. And so by me owning my own emotions and knowing that anger triggers this kind of reaction, then I can mitigate that and then respond. And usually the I becomes then how do I respond through inquiry? so that I can still like kind of get my emotions under control and then I can engage because if I'm talking at you in that moment, it's still going to feel like an accusation. So if I can ask a question and give myself time to breathe, then I can actually hear you differently. And if my goal is to seek to understand you, even if we have polarizing beliefs, I can still show up with compassion and say, you know, I may not agree in the end. I still may not agree, but I can hear you differently. Can we just talk a little bit more about the I and then the repair, like the interrupt and the repair? Because I think the interrupt, you know, recognizing just to revisit is like this idea of where in my body, what just happened? What is going on for me? I need to recognize that something doesn't feel right. And then interrupt reminded me of one of Misash and our favorite phrases on the podcast is like when someone makes a racist joke, you go like, what did you mean by that? You sort of push back. Can we talk a little more practically about those, the next two steps to fully round out? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that we do with the I is usually questioning, you know, inquiry if you can, but it also inquiry requires a level of calmness. If your body's in fight or flight, sometimes it's hard to you like create a good question in your head. And there are you know, I hate to say good question, but there are better questions than others. I mean, there are some questions that you can ask that are still inflammatory, right? And so, how, you know, in order to construct a question that will effectively bring out the other person instead of shutting down the other person is sometimes hard. And so if you can't construct that good question, the second and third strategy for interrupt is to actually share the impact. Because, you know, again, as an intuitive personal person, you know, and on the quadrant, I can easily tell you, wow, like that really hurt my feelings. And then my next question can be, is that your intention? Like, I'm just going to get to it because I don't have the ability to construct a really good question for you. That's going to help you explain. So I'm going to let you know the impact that had on me. And that level of vulnerability is something that we resist. So it's hard for people to go there, but my kind of argument around that is that 
they already know they hurt you based on your reaction. And so for you not to own it and share it and bring it to light actually is a defense mechanism that really, I think in a lot of ways does not, it hurts you more than it helps you, right? So if I can say, wow, that really hurt my feelings, that gives you a moment to either acknowledge, yes, well then bingo, I did it. Or wow, that wasn't my intention. Like, I didn't mean to hurt you. I was just trying to share this. But either way, I'm going to get an answer from you, right? And then the third way that you can interrupt is to share another perspective. You know, when you do have that, when you're not personally, emotionally vested in what happened, but it's important, you're like, wow, well, I have another experience with that. You know, I don't actually, I've never really seen that happen. This is how I've seen it. And so those are three ways that you can interrupt. But the idea is always about, like leading from compassion means that we want to get to the other end if we can, right? And that is the repair. So, you know, that interrupt, depending on how it goes, because some people are receptive to it. I remember, I don't think I shared this in my book, but so I grew up in West Hollywood and I don't know if you're familiar with the area, but uh, largely uh, very diverse, naturally diverse, so much so that we weren't bust when I was in school and very large Jewish Israeli population, and so I understood the concept of, you know, talking about being Jewed down, but I actually didn't understand the concept of gypsy, like gypped. And so I grew up saying, oh, I've been gypped. Like that was just something I said. And at no point did anyone ever correct me, had no idea the context of the word. And I had a colleague at the university who said, when I said that, I was like, oh, I just got, I think I just got gypped on this deal. And she said, Nancy. <laughs> and I was like, what? And she said, do you know what that word means? And I said, yeah, that I didn't get sense. She goes, do you know where it comes from? And in that moment, I was like, oh no, like I was able to deduce it, but I never stopped long enough to think about it. Her being willing to interrupt me in that moment. And it wasn't, she was she was like, I was like, wow. Okay. No, I didn't know. And I was, you know, there was an embarrassment and I thought how many people might I have offended in, you know, the 30 years prior to her correcting me. And I was grateful for her interruption. So I didn't have to do it again to anybody else. And so, you know, this idea of kind of being willing, I mean, her goal was to help me was because we were friends and to understand me. And how do we kind of extend that grace? I may be a little bit off topic, sorry, but how do we extend that grace to to even people that we don't know? And we do that. So, but the I, when it happens, happens in that moment, and it may not, the second R may not happen for a week or a month or however later, but the idea is that it happens in the moment when it can. And if it can't, because maybe you're my boss and I don't feel comfortable saying it because other people around, then that I can happen at another time, but I can also have time to prepare. And I think the bottom line for all of that is practice. So- First, I love that it's centered in the body because that's our reality. And so many times these conversations that people have, they want to have them up here in their brains. And this is how I'm supposed to do it. But we forget that our bodies are a vital part of our lived experience. And so it reminded me of the conversation we had ages ago with Soraya Shamali about anger being this really like powerful signal emotion, especially for women. And we're trained in society to pretend we're not angry. We're not allowed to be angry, but you're saying, let's recognize it. It is signaling to us that something is not right. We have to allow it to be recognized for it to simmer away and then translate into this. But 
Do you feel a lot of people, is it in human interests to lead with compassion and be interested in other people's experiences? Because I sometimes hear people say like, why should I care about other people? And I think one of the things I like about your book is, and what we've all agreed on is probably we can't make people care about other people. So how do we like, I want to still though reemphasize that a lot of this is centered in needing to start with this idea of having compassion for another person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one other piece of it is that the more you begin to understand the protocol, the more you understand that it's actually a form of self-care, which shifts it. So if I'm not trying to change your mind, and if I'm seeking to understand, my understanding may be that you are a bad person and that you are trying to hurt me, which means that my repair means that I get to disconnect from you, right? And that's a form of self-care. But when we aren't willing to engage in those dialogues, we create stories. I talk a bit about in my book about cancel culture as well and how unhealthy that is. It's like we cancel people without really knowing their why or seeking to understand what's behind it. And as an educator, one of the biggest pieces that we always talk about in education is that when a child does something wrong, that we have to separate the behavior from the child. So I don't like what you did. It doesn't equate to I don't like you. Right. And so if we could do that and offer that kind of grace to adult human beings and say, I don't like what you did, but it doesn't mean that I don't have to like you, that those two things don't have to be synonymous. That allows us to lean in a little differently so that we can determine, you know, is there something that can be salvaged between us or do we just need to let that go? I appreciate that a lot because I was something I was mulling over, right? Like the issue is with people's behavior, not with them as a person, which seems to me like giving people the benefit of the doubt until you make your own conclusion. But there are some people out there who are bad people, who are racist or who actually want to hurt people or hate on people. And so like, does this distinction matter or not? Like if ultimately we're not even trying to change anyone, we're just trying to understand them. It's more for self-preservation to understand that. Like, and you can go in until you decide distinctly that they are bad people. Yes. You can just sort of go in and be like, I'm just curious. I'm curious. I want to learn more. And then once you decide it's okay to be like, I no longer actually care to engage in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you say go in, it doesn't mean that we have to go in. I mean, I think our bodies are really good communicators if we pay attention to what they're telling us. Right. And you begin to distinguish, like, I know my fear response. I have two fear responses. One is at the back of my neck. One's in the pit of my stomach. What I've been able to determine in my 55 years is that when it's in the back of my neck, I get the hell out of there. Right. That means I am in some kind of physical or emotional danger. But when it's in the pit of my stomach, I know that I'm just it's that discomfort. And I then give myself the invitation to lean in. Now, there are times and there are people where, you know, what's that quote? When they show you who they are, believe them, right? There are people that, you know, you can do the beauty of the protocol is that it doesn't actually have to include the person that you're at odds with, that you can go through this process yourself and just determine that you've showed me who you are. And that's not what I invite in my life in this moment. And But it is through the lens of recognizing what is my belief about it? Am I jumping to conclusions, right? So if I walk myself through the RIR, I can come to the same conclusion without actually having to engage with you. But I'm asking different questions. 
And it becomes a cycle of inquiry for myself to make sure that if I am no longer willing to engage with you, that I've gone through this cycle of inquiry to make sure that it's for the right reasons. I like that. Like you can really get to peace with that decision. You're not always wondering, did I make the right choice? Did I not explore enough? You really truly have conviction and you can let that go. Yes. And when we can let it go, this is the self-care piece is that when you can let it go, it no longer sits in your body. Therefore, it's no longer causing you harm. I believe, especially for women, that we internalize so many emotions because we have been conditioned not to speak out, not to share. And I think that's where illness comes from. I think that, you know, whether it's mental illness or actual physical illness comes from our inability to actually let go of the pain and the anxiety and all the things that we carry in our bodies. And so, when I can let go and let go cleanly of it, then I no longer have to think about it. I no longer have to carry it. I really appreciate that because I think that is so overlooked, right? The physical components of and looking at RIR and this protocol, right, as self-care. And I want to ask you about that, too, because you were describing your style, right, as, you know, the fire horse, like very direct. And that is not my style. In fact, that like makes me anxious just thinking about it, right? Because I, my style has been influenced by so many things, right? Including like culturally, among other things. But when I got to the part in your book where it's talking about the four different communication styles, right? And then the four affects, and I immediately texted Sarah and I was like, I think I know which, literally this is me texting, I think I know which style you might be. I know which style I am, can you guess? And, you know, but it was so interesting to think about those four different styles and then the four affects and how that relates to RIR. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, because so for me, like I'm assertive and I'm also when I go to the four communication styles, I'm intuitive and I'm personal, right? Because intuitive and personal also has a component of emotional, which means that the first R is very easy for me. That first R, because recognizing my feelings, I live in feelings like that's where I start. And so, but when you're analytical or functional, recognizing your feelings and acknowledging them are usually harder because you're in your head. And so you're thinking you're for usually when you're analytical or functional, the, when you're describing something, you're all, you describe it as I think about it like this, this is what I think for me. I'm always like, this is how it makes me feel. And that's how I engage with my body. And I have an example in my book of um, David Parr, who used to be the CEO for Ma Pa Bell years and years ago when it was called that. We It literally took him like 11 minutes to get to a feeling word. I'm like, but what's a feeling? And everything he did was external because he was used to handling business. He was used to fixing things. That's what he did. But when he finally got to the feeling, it was this epiphany for him truly where 11 minutes to identify the feeling and then all the emotions that flow it back up for him around that feeling that he could trace it back to like a third grader, you know, elementary school experience of being bullied had been impacting his life for 60 plus years, but he wasn't aware of the impact it had. So he had zero tolerance for bullies. And that's why I mean that first recognize is important because now he understands why he interrupts the way he does when it comes to bullying, because he's bringing that baggage from elementary school into a 60-year-old man's body, right? And it's carried through. So us understanding our learning styles helps us know, okay, that first R is going to be a little bit more challenging for me because I'm not used to, it's not just the naming of, but really 
you know, our first question when we think about the protocol is like, where do you feel it in your body? Like, and so we say, breathe through it and actually tap into your body and let your body's intelligence tell you what is happening for you. And then you have to break that down. And an example would be like, you know, I was in a session where a white woman I was working with, she said, I'm feeling very unsafe right now. And for you say that to a black facilitator. So I stopped the whole session. There's a hundred people in the room. And I'm like, oh, we have to time out. We have to stop because I can't carry on. You just told me, you just told the whole room that I am making you feel unsafe, which has some really strong implications. And so are you really feeling unsafe or are you just feeling uncomfortable? And so I said, can I ask you a couple of questions? And she said, yes. And so I went through this questioning process with her and I said, so are you unsafe or are you uncomfortable? And she's like, I think I'm uncomfortable. Because I was like, do you think I'm going to harm you? You know, like, I really wanted to know, like, do you feel like you're in some kind of emotional or physical harm from me? And when she answered her question, she was like, you know, I guess it was just what I'm used to saying. And that is a detour to these conversations. Because the minute a white woman says she's unsafe, then everyone's coming after me. Right. And I wasn't going to let that happen. I mean, that just leads into this question that I must ask, right? Because I love that you said in your book, again, it says, if someone triggers you, it's important to practice changing your triggers because you can't change a person. And I read that line, my problem, I was like, oh, my husband really needs to hear this line because he reacts to stuff with the family. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is about me. He triggers me when he does certain things. I need to stop with that. I'm going to fix him right? Which is probably good marital advice overall. But like, (laughs) I really thought I need to focus on my triggers that I have installed with regards to some of the things that are going on in my home. And so at the same time, I feel like it does a dance with what you just talked about, the centering of the self. Because when white women or white people do that, or where we're engaged in racial work, we keep asking white people not to center themselves. Please listen to the impact that you're having on people of color. How do those two things work in concert with one another? Yeah, it's not or, it's and, right? They both have to happen, right? And so we always have to, and so in, if I'm a white woman and I'm in that listening place of hearing you know, the missing perspective, then I also have to center myself and like, okay, what are those triggers that are happening to me when I hear this? You know, a lot of the general ones that we hear are the guilt and the shame and that which, you know, kind of detour them from doing the work because they get caught up in their feelers. And so the idea is, you know, how do I acknowledge that those are real? And then how do I dig beneath? Is it really that, you know, am I really responsible? And how do we get to the place where we begin to separate ourselves from the normalized kind of stereotypical norm, right? That big picture. Like, how do I not take responsibility for all Black people in, on the planet? When a Black person does something wrong, how do I not cringe personally because I think it's going to have a negative impact on me? And it's the same thing, but we don't talk about it the same way as white people are having the exact same experience. So the minute you say white, all the negative connotations that have been associated with white are is also the weight that they're carrying, right? But we never look at whiteness. We look at, you know, we look at people of color. We look at the weight that we carry, but, you know, we are doing a disservice to us growing if we also don't invite white people to look at the stereotypes that are surrounded about whiteness and the weight that that has and the impact that it has on how they communicate, how they hear things, how they engage. People hear our title and instantly they're like, dear white women, 
who are you calling white? Like, what do you mean white people? So we sense that from, but we're very clear that whiteness is something we need to examine this culture of, and the stereotypes that are associated with it. So that's really interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit because there was a part in your book that I really liked where you're talking about sort of the org chart, right? I have two kids who play competitive soccer. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm here for this. I understand. <laughs> I had two midfielders, actually. And so I thought that that was such a great way of describing, you know, how you look at your organization and what that means for the work that you do. So can you talk to our audience about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) soccer is a great analogy because everyone has different roles. And I think that was the most important thing when I was looking at my organizational chart was how do I maintain the roles that people have, but also really convey the message that every role matters, that there's not a lesser role on the team. That without your forwards, without your midfielders, I can't do what I need to do in the backfield, right? You know, that we all have to be able to negotiate not only where we are, but also how do we move? You know, how does that movement become fluid between us? And so it was the best analogy that I could think of to really show my team what I meant by a flat organization, right? And flat being, because the minute you say flat, someone says, but you still tell me what to do. I'm like, yeah, I'm still the CEO. And at the end of the day, it still falls on my shoulders and I value your input and your input is necessary for me to continue to make good decisions, you know, for how this organization is going to run. And it's not an easy journey. That's what I will say, is that I almost feel like because of the way we've been conditioned, that it's actually easier for people to have that hierarchical org chart where I just tell them what to do. But because I don't, we actually have to wrestle more because people want me to tell them what to do and I'm not going to that way. And if you have an issue with something I'm doing, there is 100% an expectation that you are conveying that issue to me so that I can either explain to you why it needs to be that way, because not everyone's privy to all the information that I may have, or I get an opportunity to reevaluate and see, is there another way that I can do this? But it makes all of us responsible. So when someone on my team wants to point a finger at me, you don't get to do that because we're in this together. What a brilliant way to just make sure that everybody feels like they matter. Like we know that that is such a critical part of human thriving and you've created that in your organization. How much, I don't know if it's training is the right word or experience do people in your company have to have with compassionate dialogue and the RIR protocol? Because in order to function in a scenario like that, where you're expecting them to be independent thinkers and have a voice and participate fully in the process of employment. Yeah. Remember I said, it's a journey. (laughs) That's the best way to describe it. I mean, all of my people, regardless of whether they're a trainer or they're in the back of the house, we all practice it. And we still have, you know, things that come up and where we have to work through it. You know, we're in a little bit of one right now. And it's just like, you know, we just got to keep using our protocol. And so we have these worksheets that we use with clients. And right now we're using them internally to find out, you know, what have we determined is just the way it is. And what beliefs do we have that allow us to get to this action or, you know, and so we are having to work ourselves through to figure out where are we breaking down in this process? 
It is. It's a constant journey as with all of this work, but I like that you have the protocol. I think if we can talk a little bit about the different forms repair can look like, you know, because in your case, for example, the repair was that, wow, you realize something and you won't repeat it again. But there are other times where it's about the two interpersonal like relationships and the conversations that happen where someone is hurt. And how do you process repair in those scenarios? While you're answering that, if you could talk a little bit about that gap of time too, because I think people sort of expect everything to be like immediate and that repair should be immediate or, you know, it doesn't happen. So I would love if you could talk about that repair might not immediately follow. Yeah. And also the fact that it's not necessarily linear, right? You Mm -hmm. might go recognize, interrupt, 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 repair, interrupt, repair, like (laughs) it can do that too. But so repair And I would say that this is probably the piece that doesn't happen in general, unless, you know, I would say, unless you live in the same household and you can only avoid each other for so long, you got to speak again. The repair is something that gets lost in society. And we, even if we had a good interrupt, because as time goes by, I think our brains start to create counter narratives to what happened and beliefs about what people think about what happens. And even we start to shift our beliefs. And so the repair usually gets avoided, which means then that people then start to, even though they have that moment that may have been really powerful, they still end up pulling away. And so repair says, okay, how can I re-engage with that person even after a difficult interrupt, right? And so the most common is engaging. It is that literally just kind of showing up. I asked a gentleman once and I said, how would you repair? He's like, I would come back up and I would just give him a fist pump because that's how you know we're still good. You know, it could be asking someone to coffee. You don't actually even necessarily have to talk about whatever that issue was. The idea of repair is that reconnection that says we are okay. We survived that conflict. I say in quotes because we have to normalize conflicts on some level um, and say that that's a part of how we grow and move forward but that we're okay, that like, you know, okay, like, so you and I can have those moments and we can still come out at the other side. Sometimes it requires more of a deeper repair where we have to grow and learn together. You know, sometimes there's gaps in information and we have to try to fill those gaps. And so a repair can look like learning together. You know, a repair can be sometimes just making amends. I mean, there's many, many times where the repair for me has been, I'm really sorry. You know, I didn't listen. And I didn't mean to hurt you. And I hear what you said. That wasn't my intention. And I own it. And I'm going to try not to do it again. Right. So repair, it depends on how the interrupt goes, which is why you can't plan for a repair. So you can do the R and you can do the I on your own. But the third R, if you're talking about interpersonal or organizational, really depends on how that interrupt goes. If you and I have a really tumultuous, you know, I'm trying to use the protocol, I'm trying to ask questions, but you're so angry. Sometimes it's just like, wow, you know, maybe we just need to, you know, I need to give myself a timeout or we need to take, you know, 10 minutes or we need to take a week or we need to take a month and come back. But when you come back, you may still be an interrupt. But if you can come back to repair, it's like, wow, I thought about what you said. And I'd like to you know, offer this perspective. So an example, I did a training and I was using Peggy McIntosh's work around unpacking the knapsack of white privilege. And there was a white woman in the room and she just was not happy with it. She struggled and she was very upset. And I kept trying to explain 
kind of the purpose of it and a little bit of background. And she emailed me afterwards because she was still struggling. And I was able to share with her some other articles. And I said, you know, what I couldn't say, maybe you can hear this from these authors. And she wrote back and said that was super helpful for her to get another perspective. And at the end of the day, for whatever reason, she just couldn't hear me. Right. That's what it meant. And I don't have to be, you don't have to hear me. I just want you to hear someone. (laughs) And if it's not me, can I give you information that's going to help you understand the bigger picture of what it is that I'm talking about or what it is that caused me pain? You know, that's kind of the bigger goal. And if my goal is that, you know, we're healing together, then it doesn't take anything away from me to not have it be me. It's not about my ego at all. I think that seems like the crux of it. And that repair part is so important to counter this idea of cancel culture. Like we want to keep that in mind because we do need to have connections. We are all like in it together, right? As a society, we absolutely are. So even if it doesn't always happen or doesn't happen right away, it's something for us to always keep in the back of our minds. Like if we are in a situation where there is an interrupt, how can we make sure that our relationships are solid uh, at the end of the day? Yeah. And that reconnection is the most important way. It's the easiest way to, you know, but sometimes I think our pride gets in the way of feeling like, oh, I'm somehow showing weakness by coming back around. And I'm always going to argue that we're showing strength. It takes strength to come back and one, admit you're wrong or to come back and to compromise. I mean, that's all strength. Staying stuck is easy. I like that. Is there anything else that we left out that you'd like to talk about today? You know, I just think that, you know, like anything, I always say, if you speak a second language, if you've ever learned an instrument, if you ever played a sport, what they all have in common is practice. And if we really want to see a shift in the way that we are interacting with each other, we have to practice having difficult conversations. So, you know, the protocol, the compassionate dialogue is a strategy. It is not the strategy. There's not one way to do this. If it resonates with you, great. But the idea is what can each of us do to keep these conversations on the table and to remember to lead with love and compassion? I think that's so important because Again, I think people, you know, want that one and done, you know, and if it doesn't go right the first time, then that's it. So I I love the just that reminder to practice and practice what works for you, but practice. So if people want to find your book, find out more about you, where can they go? So for me, it's drnancydome.com. And that's a good place to start because if the work that folks are looking for, I can always refer them to Epic Education. And then the book, I'm always big on supporting your local booksellers. So, you know, our publisher is one that any bookseller can order if you want to go in and order. But it's also, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and it's just under Let's Talk About Race and Other Hard Things. It'll pop up. So it's so good to be able to connect with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop. 